How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah, sitting here with Dr. Michael Easley. What are we doing today, Dad? You know, that's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) We're having fun. That's what we're doing. Always. Um, You know, you do bonus episodes. Uh, You organize some of the things we do in a bonus episode. And Robert and Liz White have been Cindy's and my friends for almost 40 years. Yeah. And we often talk about the Paul, Timothy, Barnabas. Perhaps folks have heard that phrase. You, you need a Paul, you need a Barnabas, you need a Timothy. Someone older, more mature, someone yep. who encourages you, kind of walks with you, and someone that you're discipling and yep. encouraging. Well, certainly Robert and Liz were uh, in some ways mentors to Cindy and me, but mm-hmm. they were just a few years ahead of us. And then we became just incredibly close friends over the years. And they continue to amaze me. With a couple, they're not paid staff. They're not like, you know, um, they're just very unusual. I hate the term lay people, but they're so remarkable in how involved they are in ministry. Yeah. And they never stop growing. Yeah. So I wanted to do a bonus, bonus episode. <laughs> I'm just talking about a couple that there are remarkable people who are involved in a local church in Dallas, Texas, and they do ministry on the backstroke in some respects, they put some full-time pastors, I know, to shame hmm. with the amount of ministry they do. And you know them for many years. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I think about Robert and Liz, three big things come to mind. One, the friendship that they've had with you and mom for, as you said, almost 40 years. People my age would kill to have a relationship like that. And I mean, I know it started when y'all were 25. So obviously people my age, you know, we don't even have the time yet. I can't expect to have a 40 year relationship today as a mid 30 year old, but the hope that man, when I'm in my sixties, who's going to be my Robert and Liz white. So just thinking about relationally, how you pursue friends for that long over decades, over geographical differences, all that to the way that they have parented four girls not without tons of hardship and heartache and difficulties. And, you know, one of their daughters is my very best friend. So I know it from the other side as well. And then three, the ministry they have with other people. And I think, I mean, most couples don't, they're, they're doing all three of those things in an incredible way. Most people are maybe doing one and a lot of times not any of those (laughs) three things very well. well. (laughs) And so you're right. It's, I mean, to me, they sit in a different playing field and they're not perfect. They're not, you know, it's not right. like they're these two holier than thou, you know, people, but Anything they, but, yeah, yeah. yeah, but they, I think have just lived with extreme intentionality in their marriage and parenting and ministry with others. And one of the things we had fun talking about in this interview was the differential between people that are growing in Christ versus those who, and I don't want to sound hard, but they don't really grow or they're apathetic yeah. or they're consumed with things of the world. And again, you got to see them from very early on. I mean, they were probably at our house in Dallas. I know they were when you were born. We brought you home from Baylor Hospital. Mm. Your mom's OB 
was the same as Liz White's OB. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. So funny. Aaron and Jenny uh, were born, and I think the twins were born. Uh, Robert, he's also uh, White. His his name, Robert White, was the uh, was the doctor. The doctor as well. Yeah. But anyway, watching this now for close to forty years, and you know, we, your mom and I, you've moved around the country, been involved in different churches, different ministries, different organizations, and they just stand out for a lot of reasons as a couple that I just marvel at. Even now that Robert's semi-retired, he could retire if he wanted. He's so invested in ministry and people's lives. It just it encourages me not to stop mm. because a lot of us get tired. And we say, oh, man, I've been there, done that. I did my time in the nursery, so to speak. And there's this, um, I don't know what it is. There's something about them. There's a spiritual, you use the word intentionality, that you just don't see in a lot of couples. Yeah. So anyway, let's go to the interview, and you can listen in on a conversation with two of my closest friends in life, Robert and Liz White. In 1981, Cindy and I had been married for a year, and we moved from our little studio apartment in Nacogdoches, Texas, to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. So we uh, relocate to Dallas, we're new to town, and we're visiting churches. We had to find a church to be involved with, to attend while we went to seminary. And there were a lot of churches to choose from. And long story short, we visited around, and one Sunday we found our way to a church called Trinity Fellowship. And we loved the teaching elder, whose name was Dr. Ed Bloom. And we went once, maybe twice, and all of a sudden this guy kind of transports out of nowhere, grabs me by the collar and says, hey, come help me in student ministries. And number one, I was terrified of teenagers. Number two, I didn't know who this guy was. And I kind of mumbled something like we were working with children's ministry. He goes, that's okay. You can, that doesn't take that much time. This is more important or something like that. And next thing I knew, I was roped into a small classroom with about a dozen, maybe 15 high school students and Robert and Liz White. And that was 1981. And here it is, almost 40 years later. Almost 40 yeah. years. And so I just thought it'd be a blast to talk to you guys. So hi, Robert and Liz White. Hello, Good morning, Michael. Michael. Now, and since that time, I think Cindy and I babysat when you had Aaron and Jenny. Jenny was still in diapers. We babysat once or twice, and you said, hey, let's go out with you. And so, <laughs> so we started hanging out. And, of course, we were poor, 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 and you and Liz would take us to Mexican restaurants and Chinese restaurants and buy us dinner. And we just fell in love with you guys. And we've continued that relationship now all these years, four daughters, all married. How many grandkids you guys have now? Eight, eight grandchildren, eight, five, and all under five, four, three, two, one. Wow. Who would have thunk? So anyway, one of the things we want to talk about, I mean, number one, let's just talk about long-term friendships. I mean, you got to have an opinion on how this works and why it works. I'm thinking as you're talking, about the stages of life that we've shared together and all the changes that have occurred in your family and our family, uh, different issues, traumas, joys, stages. And it's incredible to me that 40 years later, we're still learning and growing and, and we've got more to share. It's the camaraderie within that time period and the faithfulness and the growth of our friendship, even though we only have lived in the same town for the four years you were in seminary, yeah. correct? Yeah. Well, uh, when Grand Prairie, we were nine and a half years, but we were kind of, you know, we saw you less frequently then, but we were still close enough. But yeah, 
close enough. Right. So Liz, I mean, right. you and Robert are extraordinarily involved in ministry in local churches. And I mean, I could tick through things like AIM and what you're doing with marriages and prodigal. And I mean, it goes on and on and on. And, and you're an extraordinary, I hate to use the word lay couple, but aside from getting into that right now, how many folks, when you look around your sphere of influence, have these really long-term relationships that have stood the test of time? Mm. A lot? I'd say 20% of the people we know. That's pretty high. Have yeah, what we have. Yeah. But we've lived in one city our entire right. lives. And so we've watched the history of folks for 60 years. Right. It takes somebody like a Michael Leasley, though, that pursues mm-hmm. I mean, Michael, I look at the relationships that you choose to maintain, and they're maintained because you make it work. And, you know, with Howard Hendricks, how you pursued Howard Hendricks, and you became a very close friend because you pursued him. And he goes, people don't pursue me. You know, they want me to come and talk, but Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily pursue me. And uh, you have pursued Liz and I, both of us, over all these years. And that's what makes a relationship work. If there's one person that's willing to pursue and another person that's willing to be pursued, a lot of times that's what it takes. Do you think believers can grow and mature in faith apart from that kind of community? No, I do not. At the level that you're speaking of, I do not. I think it requires the iron sharpening iron and the honesty between friends and the love and encouragement when you're down and discouraged and hopeless. We see couples from a marriage viewpoint that have a lot of friends. They are socially engaged, but they're really in isolation when it comes to who they are as a couple and how they relate to one another and, you know, the level of their oneness. And so our passion is to help folks gain more oneness because doing isn't necessarily the answer. It's being, and it's hard to be a couple and to really connect with each other because there's so many things that pull at you. And so that's why we have such a passion for trying to get folks to really be able to hold hands, to talk with each other, to want to pray with each other, to share with each other what God's doing in their life. A lot of times Liz and I will share our journals. It's hard for us to talk about it. Sometimes we'll just read what we're saying to God and asking God and pleading God for, and it helps, and what scriptures we're studying. And a lot of times we'll just send those to each other, and that's a way for us to connect in ways that we don't normally connect. And the couples you guys have worked with and some of our, our friends and peers, Robert and Liz, what, what do you think is the differential from people that continue to grow versus those that maybe get to a point and they go through routines. They might be in a church or a small group, but they're not in the word. They're not praying. They're not growing. They're not being stretched by their own, you know, internal motivation. The people you've counseled and watched, could you point out some differentials and why some people seem to grow, why others don't? That's a great question. Something we've encountered recently is the term bitterness. And, you know, you don't like to look at the word bitter, but it's the opposite of grateful. If you're bitter, you're not going to be grateful. And especially during this time and season, just to be thankful to the Lord and thankful to your spouse and not take for granted the relationship. And so, you know, we have this thing we talk about where it starts out a little bit disappointed, 
and then it gets just discouraged, and then it gets alienated. So whatever it is, your relationship with God starts out, you're disappointed, and then you get to a point where you're discouraged, and you just kind of tune a little bit out from the relationship. And we see that happening with spouses, and they get comfortable just not relating on subjects that are not going to have any success. And so they pick the things that work, whether it's sitting down and watching TV or having meals together or being occupied by the Hallmark Channel. But in terms of actually connecting with each other about what's happening in their lives, besides just talking about what happened at the office or what happened with the kids or grandkids, they don't have that much going on for them. May I add something to that? I think the whole issue of distraction is a huge one. And the, of course, we're going to talk about social media and the distraction of our black phones that we hold in our hands. The interruption and the perception that you're actually relating to someone by connecting on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter is a huge issue to me in forging real relationship. You've got to put those down and take the time to be face to face. And that's obvious, but I see that so much now, not just in marriages, but in families with friends who think, oh, I'll just say happy birthday over Facebook, but there's no real connection. And so when you're in crisis and you need those folks to come alongside, you may be surprised at what little connection you have. So hopefully that's already something families and couples and those of us that realize the impact it's having on us are working on. But that issue of distraction is a huge one for me. You know, it's funny you mentioned social media technology. We just interviewed a research professor. I think he was from Dallas Seminary who wrote an abstract on people using phones and their Bible retention. And it was a mm. very interesting study. The Christian Post and some other media outlets picked it up and kind of popularized his comments. But, you know, I walk into our church and I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of people have their neck craned down, looking their lap at their phone. And when I was used to be around student ministries, boy, oh boy, was that a challenge. And in fact, some of them now are putting baskets where, you know, you got to put your phone in the basket when you go into a meeting or something, which makes a lot of sense. But it is an interesting thing. And then the corollary is these, a lot of younger friends of ours are craving community. <laughs> it's like, well, if you put the phone down, maybe that would help a little. <laughs> our kids are in their thirties and uh, just talking about the difficulty of trying to relate. And these are folks that all have kids, but the issue is we struggle to have those meetings face to face because we've gotten so used to, it being typed on our screen or our information that we get from somebody else is from Facebook. And so when we're actually with those people, it's a little uncomfortable to talk about things that really matter. And so we tend to not do that. And I think that's a little scary for what community is going to look like because it's, as Liz said, it was iron sharpening iron. So how much iron sharpening iron is going to happen if we're not comfortable being face to face with another person and talking about things that really matter to us. So Liz mentioned uh, Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen: iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Chapter 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, mm. but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs seventeen, seventeen: a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born 
for adversity. And I can think of real quickly, probably 10 things off the top of my head of where you, Robert and Liz, were those, you know, faithful wound people. And you were also the ones that were there in adversity. And I can think of times when you guys were going through thick and thin. I hope, you know, Sydney and I were there for you in that regard. And it wasn't, you know, your comment about initiative, I think is, is key, Robert. And that's my hardwiring was to pursue relationship because, and maybe that reflects more on my own insecurity. I need people around me to keep me on task, to prop me up, to encourage me, to confront me. As our buddy Dave Gibson says, you know, you need a good dope slap easily, you know, and other times, you know, he says, you need encouragement and we need people like that, but that takes time to cultivate the relationship you and I have. Yeah. It goes back to the old saying, are you a here I am person or are you a there you are person? And I still love that because it does take just showing up in those crisis moments and having just lost my mother 18 months ago, it was the people that just showed up with very few words or an offering of a card or dropping a flower at my door, very simple things, but they were not typing it in. They were actually coming by and showing up. And that mattered. It still matters. So I, I agree with you, Michael. We pursue because we need relationship, but people are out of practice and we've got to teach that again. Let me go back and ask again the differential between people that grow and mature. Robert, you talked about, you know, being disconnected or whatever. What what other things maybe, Liz, you've seen? And Cindy and I have watched couples. I love that phrase in Paul's letter where he says, Demas, having love this present world, Hmm. uh, left him. And uh, we don't know the backstory. I've always wanted to write a book called The Way of Demas. <laughs> you know, the, 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 oh, wow. These are Christians who were solid disciples, but at some point they took a turn and they walked away. And again, I'm not, you know, judging or angry at them. It's just interesting. It seems more Christians, in my experience, don't grow. They stop at some point. And it's apathy or materialism or problems. I don't know. But that's my passion is that, you know, we help them grow as disciples. So what have you guys seen, again, differentials between those who continue growing and maybe those who don't? One thing that I have seen recently or maybe just comprehended recently is that trials of life, the challenges of life, folks respond in several ways. But one of them that's dangerous is the Reality, which is a false reality, that God is not good. I thought God was good, and he's not. And I think those folks are in huge danger of leaving the fellowship, leaving the truth. And I've seen that recently, and that's why I'm bringing that up. Because our view of God impacts the way we see the world, of course. And when you lose the understanding that God is good, or maybe you never had it, and you're working towards it, but things happen, and then you... Your truth is he is not. It's dangerous. You've also seen some success stories, whether it was through re-engage or people you've discipled or even maybe not to get too deep, but even with some of your daughters. Mm-hmm. What, in your observation, what was the fulcrum that moved these couples or someone from maybe living in sin or hardened or calloused to a change and now they're growing? We talked last night to some couples, and our key verse was John fifteen five, And Jesus said, apart from me, 
you can do nothing. But if you abide with me, you will have much fruit. And I think it's easy to move away from abiding. Sometimes it's a slippery slope, and before we know it, we are miles away from where we were spiritually, where we were connected. I think what Liz said about God's goodness, people hide what they think about God because they're ashamed that they're not strong enough as a Christian because they can't see in their heart and soul that he's a good God because he's done something that hadn't worked out for them or they don't see the whole plan or, you know, they really needed something to work out and it didn't. And so they're discouraged. And so I just think abiding the couples, the individuals that abide with the Lord, they tend to have purpose. And then everything flows out of that abiding. But if they're disconnecting, you know, their batteries are drained. And so we see folks with just drained batteries. And, you know, and they're always looking for ways to jump their car to get it started by this or that person or this interest or even that ministry. And what they're really trying to do is replace God because he's he's the plug-in. He's the wall plug-in to where we get our power. And, you know, it was interesting. Jesus said, I'm leaving this earth, but I'm going to leave you the comforter. And that comforter is the spirit. And we get the word spirit from Numa, and literally it's pumping us up. And the spirit, the comforter, comes and shows us what God wants in order that we can abide, in order that we can see his goodness, in order that we can endure a circumstance, in order that we can be loving and have a purpose for our love and have something to offer. And so I find folks first pull the plug without realizing it, and they don't have what they want. When you look back on, I I like to think of decades our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and as we minister across purposes. And I, and I might just also pull in this conversation because you and I have had, you know, Alan and Shirley Hull in our life, you know, mm-hmm. these mentors that were ahead of us in, in time mm-hmm. and maturity and watching them go through hardships and challenges and prosperity and loss. And so, you know, what Prof talked about, everyone needs a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy, you know. So we've been fortunate to have the Pauls, if you will, uh, out in front of us. And then we have this collegial ministry you and I have together. And then we look at the couples that you're influencing that Cindy and I have tried to encourage along the way. And and part of that, your comment, there's a point here, these decades, when you're in those different decades, you're consuming your twenties with certain things. If you're married in your thirties, you're consumed with little people probably and children and trying to keep a marriage in your forties, you tend to be freaked out about your economics and am I going to have enough to care for these people and retire and be, you know, whatever. And your fifties, the, you know, careers running out sixties, it's boy, the short runway and seventies and eighties, no one talks about it. And one of the things I've observed in my own life and Cindy's life is you mentioned it, both of you mentioned it, you got to have purpose and the purpose of economies and jobs and materialism and bigger, better, newer, more that is an all-consuming thing unless we make a choice to say, time out. My purpose isn't just horizontal. My purpose has got to be ministry. And again, I, I'm, I'm, this is a lot of us just free thinking, but it comes out of watching people for all these years. And I can't expect a 20-year-old couple to have the same investment, or maybe I should, in things of Christ. But as they get older, 
can you define your purpose? Did you guys in your 20s and 30s have a clear purpose or did it evolve by trial and error? I am going to celebrate my 48th spiritual birthday tomorrow. Wow. So I became a Christian at 15. I think Robert was 17. And we were on fire. And so 20s and 30s for us were all about, in many ways, self-actualizing. But it was a lot of it was ministry. Growing. And we loved it. And we had the bandwidth. And we had the opportunities. But I think you're right. Most people today perhaps don't have that luxury. And they're working very hard to pay off student loans and have a new job and et cetera. So I think, yes, we absolutely began with that as a wonderful background and just a great opportunity. Then life happens and you learn the real hard stuff and you become more attractive because it's not about self. It's not about what you have to offer. It's what God offers through you. So we definitely have matured in that. Because we thought we were the ones that had so much to offer in our early 20s and 30s. And the Lord showed us differently that it was we were the channel. I just look at the cockiness (laughs) of my thinking that I had something to offer. And I look back at the John 15 passage and, you know, was it from abiding or was it from my own shtick? that I thought was going to help somebody else. And I look back just with humility mm-hmm. and uh, trying to serve over the years like we have and without real true power, because the true power comes when we realize Christ loves us. And when you're a deeply loved person, what you're doing has a whole different purpose. And so too much of my ministry was without really coming out of the love of Christ it was just doing, it was just serving. It was just trying to people please. It was, you know, trying to justify my existence, but it didn't have the depth that it does now of really caring for these folks. And we're at a different place. We have more margin to care. I think when you have three or four kids, I remember the reason I got you in ministry, the reason I pulled you by the collar, which is by the way, not a fact. Uh, I, gave you an opportunity and it was not student ministry. It was high school ministry. And you had to work with high schoolers who were 17 years old and trying to figure out who they were. And Michael, you were magic. It was the greatest thing I ever did was get out of the way and let God bring in somebody who was really good. And I think a lot of times in ministry, we fail to see that there are folks that could be really good at things if we would just give them the opportunity. And they may not be professional people, they may be lay people that just have a passion or an ability to connect with others through Christ. Let's go back to talk about purpose a little as we trial and error and maybe we're led or given opportunities or whatever. Do you feel like you say, I, I really kind of know what my purpose is at this part of my 60s? Mm. Well, I never focused enough on caring and loving for my wife. So that was a huge change for me of really putting her first. You know, I think, and I don't know if other couples do this, but I took too much for granted regarding the two of us. You know, we've been together since she was 15. And so we're just, it was almost a brother-sister relationship as opposed to really trying to be the spouse that has her best interests 
concerned about how her day is and how I am with her. And that's been new for us after being married 43 years. Liz, how about you? And I would say I'm learning. It's amazing to learn new things at 63. But I would say God is teaching me even more about opening my hand and not having a closed fist to what he is asking me to do, where he's asking me to go, what he's allowing. And it surprises me how the Holy Spirit is teaching me to do that. Now, I know there'll be pop quizzes, and that's scary. But again, it's back to God's goodness and kindness. And so for me, it's a personal journey of, all right, Lord, it's not happening the way I wanted life to happen in so many ways. In other ways, it's lovely, but it's accepting what he's given. When you look at each other, Robert, first, what, like, how has Liz encouraged you? And I know that's, you know, a big, long topic, but if you could just think through some things specifically, how has she encouraged you? in your Christian walk as a husband, as a father, as a you know person in the field and leading a company, hiring people? How has she encouraged you? Well, she's just been my right-hand person. I mean, when I say right hand, I mean, I, and I write with my right hand. So a lot of times I'm writing with Liz. I mean, she plays that big of a role. Sometimes I think it's too big of a role. You know, sometimes I feel like, hey, I've got this. And she's like, well, you may have it, but have you considered this? So she is always trying to sharpen me. And sometimes we feel the tension of that. But in reality, it makes me a better, we do our ministry together. It makes me a, a better facilitator. It makes me a better work person. It definitely makes me a better person with the Lord because her insights challenge me to go further. And I think we're competitive. And I think sometimes too competitive. And I don't know where other folks are, you know, in their marriage, but she is intricately involved in everything I do. And uh, it's just the way we work. Liz, how about you? How has Robert encouraged you as as a mom, as a wife, as a, a person involved in other people's lives? Robert has stayed in all the aspects. And I'm a team player. He's a lone ranger. He's a do-it-himself guy. So it's a really loving act. For me to watch him stay in and encourage and be enthusiastic about our family and our marriage and every really every aspect of our life together he has stayed with me in it and is involved and not just saying well you take care of that you be with the girls our daughters you take care of the grandkids no he's right there but the thing that most encourages me about robert and has for the last 43 years is that he loves the Lord and he spends time alone and he takes care of his spirit. And when he's discouraged, he goes to the Lord and he gets in the word and he seeks counsel and he asks over and over again. He waits where we've learned to be waiters. That's not something that comes naturally, but I've watched him spend time listening and asking and seeking and learning. And that, that by far is the most important thing he does for us is to take care of his soul. Now, Cindy and I have known countless couples in our Christian life, our married life, and we would always put you guys at the top of the list of people that love their daughters. 
I know a guy, Robert, that has been as incredible as a father to his daughters mm. as you have. I mean, that's just, I mean, I could think of 10 people that would say, right, 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 right. At your 40th wedding anniversary, how many people commented on you were wired to raise girls? And now to see those women with their own children, talk a little bit about that. I mean, I know that's kind of an odd way to toss that to you, but there was a lot going on raising girls. I, I tried to raise three, <laughs> four. <laughs> and, you know, you always feel as a father, boy, I'm damaging this girl. Her view of men and God is all screwed up because of me, you know. And yet I watch, you know, three of your daughters that I know better, they just adore you. I mean, they'll call you out in a heartbeat, but they adore you and they look to you. That's just, you use the word magic. I don't like that word, but that's magical. <laughs> <laughs> They're so different too. And the way you have to relate to each one of them are different. So you, I'm not saying you're a chameleon, but uh, the way you engage with one daughter is just not going to work with another. You know, I have a daughter that is always going and always doing and she's going to respond to counsel different than the one that has to have a completely different way to relate. You know, I had to go to a counselor one time and the guy said, do you want her to obey you? Because it was real important. She was really having trouble with obedience. And uh, he said, you have your choice. You want relationship or do you want her to comply with everything you tell her? Because you're not going to get both. And I decided I wanted relationship. And so relationship means that it's not so much about my agenda all the time, but trying to figure out what their agenda is and help them with their agenda. So I think that's what makes it winsome. They feel like their dad's on their side. Is there time in which I tell them, hey, I think this is a dead end road? Yeah, but if there's relationship there, when they hear it, they don't shift to shame. They don't, you know, they don't look at themselves as failures. They look at themselves in light of, well, my dad thinks I'm the greatest thing there is. And if he says it's a dead end road, at least I need to look at it. That's worked well for me. That's one of the few things that's been effective is considering relationship over compliance. And that, that works in the workplace. That works in churches. That works everywhere. You know, are you that kind of person? Because only through Christ do people have that sense of selflessness, and it only comes for me, through Christ, to where it gives me that sense of it's not about me. It's not about my agenda. What is God's agenda for this person? Which goes back one quick point, if we could edit this back in. You know, you look at Facebook, and Facebook is here I am. It's a here I am person. I'm trying to show everybody who I am by my pictures and my kids and all the creative things. And there's the person that's a there you are person, and they're not using Facebook because they're always moving to be with people and be with people physically and engage with those people and look in their eyes and say, I care about you. What's your concern? How can I pray for you? I look at Liz and she spends so much of her morning praying for people. And I know her list and I read it and it's just incredible her heart to pray for people. And uh, I think we got to have that if we're going to be effective as folks of Christ. Okay, but I have to add one more thing about Robert's love of his daughters. It really helps that he loves women's fashion, he loves shopping, and he loves chick flicks. <laughs> so there's that too. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when, 
the, I just don't the, know the last one I'm going to take issue with. No, I'm, <laughs> you don't watch Hallmark with Liz, do you? Just tell me you don't do that. Oh, he absolutely. Oh, Robert. Oh, gosh, Michael, oh Robert. I'm so sorry. Oh. Michael, the stuff we watch and the stuff I watch with my wife are oh, two I'm aware of that. But I, Let me tell you. See, you're a better husband. I don't watch Hallmark with Cindy. I refuse to. I can storyboard on a two by two piece of paper. <laughs> yes, it's true. Anyway, it's kind of like the gospel, though. It never gets old. I, we're going to edit that out. We are not going to. We're not going to say the gospels like Hallmark, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> watching two people connect and having a hopeful purpose and a happy ending. That's and you, a and happy ending. you and Cindy. I mean, yeah, I want to be happy. Yeah. See, I want to be stressed and feel angst and you know wonder what they're trying to accomplish. You know, when I watch a movie. Okay, so I want to get Liz in here on the girls. As a mom of four daughters, and Robert's talked about uniquely relating to each one, their wiring, their gifting, their interests, their passions. From a mom's perspective, what's kind of been your summary of raising four daughters? Pray, pray, and pray some more. <laughs> yeah. And be available, listening more than speaking. It's really not that different than a relationship with your spouse. The being available is key and loving them in ways that they can receive love. And you have to be around them to figure that out. So everyone does the best they can. And God gifted me with that opportunity and you learn by doing. So it's just years of that over and over day after day. And I loved it. I was privileged to be able to stay home with them and raise them and love on them and guide them. And now they're believing adults and that doesn't always happen. But in our case, it was, that's the biggest blessing of our life is that our children follow the Lord. Now, grandparenting is a whole different ball game. Do you, totally. do you see your purpose? Because, you know, I look at Hannah or Jesse and their lives and I go, I can't tell them much anymore. I can ask good questions. I can try to listen. At the end of the day, our kids know what we're going to say before they ask it, right? So right. how we listen and encourage and, as you so well said, you know, find out where they are and, and love them and encourage them on. But it's different with grandkids because now, even though these are your daughters, they're someone else's wife. And they're someone else's mom. Right. So how do we find purpose in, you know, both encouraging Aaron and Jenny and in my situation, Hannah and Jesse and their marriage and their kids? And then what does that look like? Is that a complicated enough question? <laughs> it's, it's really not question. complicated. It's great. Yeah. It's being the cheerleaders and being the disciplers or another set of disciplers for the grandkids. And we're just learning, having the oldest being just now five and the rest are four, three, two, one. We're right in the thick of it. So I think it is more about being available again and being an encourager to these kiddos because we're not raising them. We have a voice and if we're careful and we're loving and we spend enough time with them, they will trust us to share their thoughts and fears, hopefully, and they will love being around us. You know, it's talking about the grandkids. It's anecdotal, but 
how many stories have we heard of you? My grandma led me to faith. My grandma prayed for right. me. You know, my grandfather always read his Bible. I mean, that's that's an interesting thing to think about at this chapter. Right. It's a huge, to me, it's a huge ministry opportunity. And I don't want people telling me it's just for me because really it's a huge opportunity to disciple. Okay, you have done yeoman's amount of work with married couples over the year. When you think through some resources that have been most impactful in relationship to marriage, parenting, or ministry, what are some, you know, obviously the scriptures are foundation, but when you think beyond that, what have been some resources, books that you've really said, you know, that that one really has been helpful to us? I like Keller's book on marriage. I listened to The Meaning of Marriage. It's a little deeper but, you know, what are we doing in our marriage? I mean, what's it all about? What, how does it represent Christ? I mean, what does it mean for me to be loving? And what does it mean to figure out what my spouse needs and, and try to help her with that? And then all involved in parenting. So I like that a whole lot. I think it's worth the read. And, of course, we have to tout re-engage because we love that ministry for all kinds of marriages in distress or just strengthening uh, the relationship and multiple resources there. But that ministry is, I think, available now across the country. How many years y'all been doing re-engage? 14, wow. maybe? 14, wow. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we started with just the church, and I think we're hitting 300 churches around the U.S. And I think that the need it meets is, you know, some folks can't afford to go spend $175 an hour with a private counselor. And we've seen, you know, the church take that back and say, there are things that come from scripture and the person may not be, the facilitator may not be a professional counselor, but the word of God is so powerful. And these folks have the power of the Holy Spirit to exhort them in who they are as a couple and move towards oneness. And so we've seen life change that we never thought would happen. We've seen couples that we didn't, you know, give much of a chance, completely change. We've seen divorced couples remarry. We've seen resurrection in marriages that we did not think possible. And it's because God chooses in his grace and mercy to give them his love and his kindness, and they change. Robert and Elizabeth White, uh, longtime friends, longtime ministry partners in local churches and parachurch ministries and you guys are a gift to Cindy and me. We love you so much, and uh, you're an encouragement to, you know, I use the phrase imperceptible influence. I have no way of knowing how God uses any of us, but I think there's a lot of ripple effects from your life, your marriage, your trials, your joys, your challenges, and people watch you, and they study you, and they see this couple that loves Christ passionately, that's involved in local ministry, that, that cares, and uh, you've got a lot of influence that uh, will only be measured in the kingdom. So thanks for your friendship. Thanks for who you are, for what you do. And thanks for talking with us. Sure. Enjoy it. Love you, Michael and Cindy. Love you guys too. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.